Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York, still basking in the glow of all of the warm reviews and wonderful comments and great feedback on our last two episodes, which, if you haven't heard them, largely dealt with Jonathan Littles being banned from ACR by its CEO, Philip Nagy, which also included our interview with Jonathan Little himself. So if you haven't listened to those episodes yet, please do so. Uh, I think you will find them very entertaining and informative. I really appreciate all of the positive feedback that we've been getting on those episodes, including, by the way, from Jonathan himself, who said that Derek Tenbush and I were fair in our assessment of the situation between him and ACR. I thought that our interview last week was especially interesting. Jonathan really opened up to me about how he felt about the whole situation. I don't think that Jonathan Little is uh, one to quickly admit when he's made a mistake, but I think that given the opportunity, he would go back and do things a bit differently. I also believe him when he says that he's not shedding any tears over not being able to play on ACR anymore. I know that playing online poker is not really the focus of Jonathan's life at this point. So, uh, and, and as he mentioned, there are other places to play. So anyway, just wanted to wrap that up because... We got tons and tons of feedback on it. Speaking of feedback, by the way, if you've never left a review on our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podbean or Stitcher or wherever else you listen to podcasts, uh, we'd really appreciate it, guys. It it helps us to climb the ranks in terms of uh, rating poker podcasts, and it's it's gotten to be a very crowded field, so if this is your favorite podcast, poker podcast or even just if it's one of them your positive review can really help us gain more visibility which in turn would allow us to continue bringing you this free content each and every week so all we ask in return is uh you know just give us the five stars or whatever it is on your uh, podcatcher of choice and thank you of course to those who have already done that for us and uh if you haven't thank you in advance. Uh, It really, really does help. And that's why I, like all podcasters, ask you to do it because it makes such a big difference for us. So today I wanted to delve into a few hands that I played when I was out in New Jersey last month on WSOP.com. Before I get into those hands, I want to touch very briefly on this whole fiasco with GG Poker. Now, many of you are American. A lot of our listeners are American. You don't play 
on GG Poker because it's not available in the United States. Uh, it is a what has gotten to be a very large international site. I believe it started in China or more accurately Macau, I guess. Um, and it has become an international site competing with the 888s of the world, the party pokers of the world and so on. So they did have a public relations disaster this week where there seems to be a great amount of discrepancy over whether this player named Fedor, I'm sorry, I can't think of his last name, but it's not Holtz. It's a different Fedor. Yes, there is more than one Fedor in poker, and there seems to be a lot of confusion as to whether this particular Fedor is or ever was a sponsored pro on the site, which led to some pretty rude behavior by the GG Poker customer service team, uh, at least their Twitter account, I, I can't believe some of the uh, responses I saw on there. And to me, it all goes back to regulation. There is really no governing body for the internet. So an international poker site doesn't really have to answer to anyone for, you know, there's no like better business bureau <laughs> or anything. So I, I think that leads to these types of problems sometimes. And the only thing I want to say about this is... Like ACR has every right to ban Jonathan Little from playing on their site, we as players have every right to pick and choose which sites we are willing to support. You know, it just reminds me of a few years ago, the whole Poker Stars disaster where they stopped, very abruptly stopped their VIP, super mega, shining star, whatever program where a lot of players that had a lot of, let's call them frequent flyer miles, ended up one day just finding out all of a sudden that those those points they had accumulated were worthless. And I believe that was the beginning of the end of Poker Stars' reign as undisputed heavyweight champion of online poker. Uh, the company... Lost a lot of customers, lost a lot of their players uh, over that, or even some of the players that always played on Poker Stars prior to that event, that incident, if you will, that new policy. Some of them continued to play on Poker Stars, but no longer aspired to be Supernova Elite or whatever it was called, and, and now just include Poker Stars among the many sites that they use for their Sunday grind or whatever tournament schedule they play. And there was a time when such players weren't even opening their eyes to the other sites that were out there offering anything because loyalty was rewarded. I mean, whoever came up with the idea originally for frequent flyer miles and similar programs, loyalty programs, is a genius, a marketing expert, because if you played on another site and you had aspirations to become a supernova or supernova elite, playing on another site felt like a mistake in a sense because you could have been spending that same money and that same time working towards your goal of becoming a supernova elite. And instead you were fooling around on Party Poker or 888 or whatever other site you chose. And so 
because of that mentality, they had a lot of players only using poker stars trying to accomplish that goal or whatever their own goal was. Similarly, in New Jersey on WSOP.com, you hear a lot of players complaining about the rake being high. You know, some of the rake, especially during this summer's American version of the World Series of Poker, some of the tournaments had a rake of 10% or 15% in some cases, which is extremely high. However, they have a very good loyalty program. Uh, I, I think they do something like bronze member, silver member, elite member, championship, whatever. You know, it's kind of the same thing, however you want to call it, whether I'm giving you a star when you pass a certain number of dollars spent on my site or whether, you know, Delta Airlines has gold, elite status, silver status. They always make it sound really fancy and special. Even Harrah's Properties, or I guess now it's called Caesars Entertainment, has their total rewards, or now I think they call it Caesars Rewards, where you can be a platinum member or a diamond member. And with each one, there are more benefits, right? So in the case of WSOP.com, you can get a large amount of your rake back. I think it's close to 50% of your rake back if you attain the highest level of whatever they call their loyalty program. So that would really help to mitigate any concerns one has about the amount of rake that's being charged on the site. And I think that's fair. It's like the base rake is a little on the high side, right? I think we can all agree 15 or even 20% is is insane. I'm not sure I've ever seen 20% on there. I know the rake structure for the WSRP seemed to have been uh, created by a random number generator. <laughs> but that's, that's another story altogether. If we start with a base rake that is on the high side, but you can reach a level where your rake is much easier to swallow, I think that's fair. And that's a good system that they have. I do hear a lot of players complain about WSOP.com as well as every other website. Let's be honest, poker players are not short on opinions and they're not short on complaints about things. But my personal experiences on that site have been overwhelmingly positive. I like knowing that the RNG is fair and I don't have to worry about whether I'm getting ripped off by the site or whether certain players have an advantage, let's say, on the site. I don't really feel any of those concerns. Uh, if I'm being cheated, it's not by the site. It might be by other players. Uh, whether or not you think players using a solver in the middle of a hand or a program that runs a solver simultaneously while you're playing, those kind of things, like there's not much we can do about it. I mean, that is the reality of online poker nowadays. So against a player that is approximating GTO game theory optimization by electronic means I'm not really sure what kind of chance I have but it's not very good if I had the feeling that most of my opponents were doing that then I would not play on the site but I think at least at this point there's not that much of that going on on that site 
But for me, I like knowing that the site is regulated. It's legal. I'm not worried about losing all my money on there. Like when we talked with Jonathan Little last week and he brought back some bad memories of sites like Ultimate Bet and Lock Poker and others that have gone out of business without paying their players back over the years. I like having the security of knowing that that's not happening on the site. I also like the software because it is the 888 software, which was the original poker software that I used, although back then it was called Paradise Poker, and that's actually the first site that I ever won a large tournament on (laughs) many, many, many years ago. And so there's a bit of nostalgia for me because they haven't actually changed the design all that much over the years. I mean, obviously it's different now, but it's it's it reminds me of of the old days of playing on that site and all of the uh, warm and fuzzy memories I have of winning lots of money on that site uh, back in Nam. We're talking like 2004, 2005, maybe would have been when I was doing a lot of that. So yeah, quite a, quite a long time ago. I wish that the American government could just get its act together and show some type of competence and proficiency and getting laws passed. Um, I think most people are in favor of legal online gambling of all types. And it would just be great if the government would support what the people actually want, which is kind of the idea of a representative democracy. But I think that we can all agree we don't always get that (laughs) with the current system. And I know we're not a political podcast, so I'm not going to share my thoughts on the debate that happened this week. But uh, let's just say it's a sad time in America and leave it at that. And now let's move on to some strategy. So during the month of September, WSOP.com had a series called Dropping Dimes. And I'm going to say some nice things about this series. So I'm actually starting to feel a bit like a shill (laughs) myself for WSOP.com, which I am not. They have never sent me a penny uh, to endorse them on this podcast or any other. So let me be very clear about that. I'm just giving my honest opinion. I think that their promotions and marketing team is pretty creative sometimes and I think they heard loud and clear some of the feedback they got about the what they call the Players Appreciation Tournament not being rake-free. If you want to really appreciate the players, then you know, give us a, a tournament with no rake. So they did that in September. Uh, they were called the Dropping Dimes series, and the twist was no one knew when they would happen. So you kind of had to check the the app or the website and see when a, a tournament was starting. Fifteen thousand dollar guarantee, I believe. It might have been ten, but the ones that I played in always reached at least fifteen. Um, but the guarantee may have been ten. Fifty dollar buy in, no rake. So can't complain about that at all. And uh, I was lucky enough to be logged in a few times. I think I played three or maybe four of these events when they just popped up and I I joined in. The first one I played was right in the beginning of the month. It may have been like a Wednesday or Thursday in the first week of September. And 
I saw that it, it had already started. So I did something I normally don't do and I registered late. So let's talk about a few hands that I played. So in this hand, the blinds are 125 and 250, or 30 chip ante per player. So the starting pot is 645. Playing nine-handed, and the action folds to, uh, let's see, under the gun plus three. I don't normally use that nomenclature, um, <laughs> but I'm trying to get used to it for you guys. I call it fourth position, and it's a nine-handed table, so fourth position at a nine-handed table is also known as the low jack. So the low jack limps right on in, and I find that strange. He's got about 20,000 in his stack. Now, we only recently bought in, and in this tournament, you start with 10,000. So uh, my M was around 15 uh, before this hand started. So I'm not in a desperate situation, but I'm obviously well below the average stack. This tournament's been running for about an hour and a half-ish. So uh, we have some work to do to try to catch up, but there's no reason with this many chips, there's no reason for me to necessarily push the action. So that's kind of the philosophy here. So there's a limp, and then the button limps behind with 28,000 in his or her stack. So we've got uh, two limpers here, and we wake up in the small blind with ace-queen. So it's a limp for 250 and another limp for 250. Uh, now, we only have 9,500 to start the hand. So if you wanted to tell me that you would just shove all in here, I would say that's a defensible play, especially being in the small blind and given that the amount in the pot at that point is already about a thousand a little over one thousand so it's yeah it's about 1100 right there so that's fine with me if you want to shove your 9500 to win the 1100 i just think ace queen is actually a little too strong in this situation so i obviously we're not going to just call we've got a, a you know, a top 10 hand, whatever you want to call it. it. It's a raising hand for sure. My decision was to three bet kind of small. So I just made it 1,200. The reason for this is, well, first of all, these two limpers probably don't have that much. And I also think that despite being out of position, uh, I, I assume they're probably not that good at no limit hold'em tournaments if they're limping in from middle position with anything they probably aren't that experienced. Now this $50 rake-free tournament with a relatively high guaranteed prize pool attracts a lot of players. I feel like $50 with no rake is the perfect price point to get players to take a shot. And so I feel like that's what's going on a lot in these tournaments. I hope they bring these back in the month of October because they were very popular and very successful and they all destroyed the guarantee. It's amazing how big of a guarantee you can blow out of the water if you just don't rake 10% of every buy-in. <laughs> so here we go. Uh, we go for the uh, for the three bet to 1,200. Actually, the raise, I should say, to 1,200 because 
the opener did not raise. It's just a raise to 1200 And then the action goes, fold from the big blind, fold from the original limper, and call from the button. So this is a pretty good outcome here. Uh, now there's 3100 in the pot, and we've got about 8300 in the stack. So we've got a nice SPR of between two and three, which is where you kind of want to be in a heads up pot with a top pair type of hand. Now we all, all we really need to do is flop an ace or a queen and we could pretty much comfortably commit to the pot without worrying about getting outplayed. So what I mean by that is that if you have an SPR of like six or seven and you flop a queen with ace queen, you don't want to try to get all in because when you do, you're usually going to be behind because they're just that's just way too many chips to be building a, such a huge pot with one pair against most opponents. But really against just about any opponent, if I flop top pair with ace-queen and my SPR is two and a half like it is in this situation, I'm pretty happy to get all in and not really worry about getting outplayed. So in other words, if I bet the flop on a queen-high flop and the guy raises on me, I'm pretty happy to get all in with him given the relatively low stack to pot ratio so we're hoping for an ace or queen on the flop so that we can go ahead and commit to the pot instead it comes six five tray rainbow so six five tray all different suits and we have ace queen offsuit so not a great flop for our hand but we still have a range advantage if you look at the buttons action pre-flop he limped behind a limper and then called a raise. So given two opportunities to be aggressive, he opted not to. Now you will occasionally see this kind of play with a strong hand, but generally it's going to be something like jack eight suited, you know, hands in that range or maybe a suited connector or any two Broadway cards like jack 10 or queen 10, something like that. So I'm not especially worried about being trapped here. And so when I say that we have a range advantage, we have a lot of aces, a lot of kings, a lot of queens, you know, big pairs in our range. What we don't have is a ton of nuts advantage. Like we don't ever have seven, four, which would be the nuts on this flop. We also probably don't have a ton of pocket sixes, pocket fives, pocket trays. So actually our opponent is more likely to have those kind of hands than we are. And so we do have to be a little bit concerned about the fact that our opponent can have the nuts or a very strong hand that's close to the nuts and we virtually can't. So that's not good, but it's a bigger problem against a skilled opponent. And as I mentioned, given the, just the pre-flop in this hand, it feels like it's very unlikely that we are up against a very skilled opponent here. How to proceed? Do we want to lead out with a continuation bet? I mean, typically, when I make a raise from the blinds, I do like to put out a bet on most flops. But this flop, I think, hits our opponent a good amount of the time. So, you know, we're, we're, we're going to get action from any six, any five, any three, obviously. But also, we'll get action from suited connectors like eight, seven, probably even nine, eight, Obviously, we want that action because we're ahead of those hands. But at the same time, our opponent could call with pocket fours. 
there there are a lot of hands that will give us action. So in balance, I think a solver would tell us that a mix between checking and c-betting here is probably ideal. And so how to decide which, I don't know, flip a coin, whatever you think. I don't think that either one is going to have a huge edge. So let's see what I did. I did c-bet here. I And I think when we c-bet on this flop, we're trying to fold out hands like two Broadway cards, like your Jack-10, your Queen-10, your Queen-Jack, those kind of hands that might have limped behind a limper and then decided to call the raise. So I think a lot of players would do that, especially with like a suited Jack-10. Looser players might do it with suited 10-9, suited 9-8. And we should be able to sometimes get folds with a relatively small C-bet from some of those hands, but not all. So I go ahead and bet 1,300 into 3,100 and our opponent calls. So at that point, there is 5,800 in the pot and hero, me, (laughs) I have 7,000 behind. So a little more than a pot size bet left in the stack and we're still out of position and the turn comes the 10 of diamonds, putting two diamonds on the board. And so your board is now six, five, tray, 10. So the five was also a diamond. We happen to have the ace of diamonds, which matters just a little bit, I guess. Uh, So now the question becomes, do we want to fire a second barrel here? Which I think would pretty much be a bluff. Uh, We we are still ahead of eight, seven, Ace four, uh, nine eight will sometimes call, even though probably given stacks, it's a mistake to do so. But you do see a lot of calls with gut shots and two over cards, which are ambitious calls in these kind of situations. So we can't rule that out. And of course, any pair. So is that a range against which firing a second barrel makes sense? My opinion is no. I don't expect this passive opponent to bet just because we check if we check on the turn. So if he does bet on the turn, unless it's a really small bet, we can usually fold ace-queen. You know, the idea of getting our SPR down to two, between two and three, was that we would commit to the pot if we flopped an ace or a queen. Instead, it came six high, and now there's a 10 on the turn. So we still don't have a pair. We don't have to feel committed to this pot. So I think check folding against this opponent is probably uh, the correct play. So let's see what I did. I checked, and our opponent did not bet here on the turn. So what does that tell us? Well, against some opponents, you could say, He didn't bluff it, so he's holding on to some kind of hand. Maybe like middle pair with ace five. Uh, His hand isn't strong enough for him to feel confident betting when I check, so he probably does not have a 10. I would put him squarely on a hand like ace five, maybe five four, right? That hand has middle pair and a straight draw. He called on the flop with something, right? 
so it's probably not King Jack. So when he checks behind, I don't think that Ace-Queen is good except for in rare circumstances when our opponent has something like 8-7 or 9-8 for a straight draw. Now the river comes the Queen of Spades. So we finally have a hand. We've got top pair on 6-5, Trey, 10, Queen. And so the question becomes what to do. Well, as I mentioned on the turn, I think that this opponent has some kind of hand. I also think he's not very good at poker. So he's got a bluff catcher, right? Something like ace-5, 5-4, maybe 7-5, 8-5, like any 5 really. It just feels like a 5 to me or maybe a 6. So I want to try to get value from those hands, which are now 4th pair. Or if it's a six, then that would be third pair. So you might say, well, great. Given that logic, Clayton should bet small and try to eke out a little bit of value for his top pair, which is almost definitely good at this point, right? If we think our opponent had one pair on the turn and it wasn't top pair, then there's no way this river improved his hand because he doesn't have queen five or queen three. Like nobody plays those hands not especially not after I raised pre-flop so this is the kind of hand reading I like to do and then the exploitative part of my game is I like to figure out what is the best approach now that I have a hand how can I get maximum value believe it or not guys I actually considered shoving because I think that I am up against a loose passive opponent probably one who calls too often Uh, Instead, I decided to bet 43 into 58. And so it's a very large bet, right? More than three quarters of the pot, if my math is correct. It's about four-fifths of the pot. So it's a large bet and one that I hope my opponent will interpret as a bluff and try to catch that bluff with his medium strength to low strength one pair hand. And I got called, and I remember rather quickly, by ace three offsuit. So our opponent limped behind a limper on the button and then called a, not large, but a medium-sized raise with the ace tray off and then called our continuation bet, which I don't mind him doing, opted to not bet the turn. I think that's optional. He could bet the turn. Because when I check that turn, I'm often going to have two overcards to the board. And so he needs to protect his hand. Um, but since he checked behind, he decided he needed to call me on the end, even though he called with not much. So uh, I feel really good about this hand. I think I played it very well. And I think that I exploited my opponent's tendencies. And because I made such a large value bet on the end and because He happened to call it after this hand. Our stack was above average and our M was over 23. Uh, I, I like that one. Let me know what you guys think. Is it better for me to just go all in on the river given the read of the opponent or do you think that he will just find the fold that much more often? So a little while later, things 
did not go our way and we found ourselves uh, relatively short stacked once again. Uh, let's see, the blinds were 300 and 600 and there was a 75 ante at a seven handed table and we had only 9,425 in our stack. And it's one fold to me holding pocket deuces. Now, a second position here at a seven-handed table, this is the low jack. So you're in the low jack, you have pocket deuces, and your M is, what is that, 94 divided by 14. It's about six and a half, six, a little more, like 6.6. .6. You're in bad shape, okay? Another way to look at this, I know a lot of you guys like to do big blinds. We have 15 big blinds. Now you have pocket deuces, all right? The other stacks of the table, there are a few that are really big, like there's one that's 61,000. Again, we have 9,400. Oh, one player has 61,000, another player has 30,000, and the others are around 15,000. We have a stack that can hurt almost everybody at our table pretty badly. We also have a stack that is getting desperate to try to make some moves. I mean, I hate having this type of stack. I don't like playing 15 big blinds. I need to try to collect the two and a half big blinds that are in the pot right now. So what if we shove? And that does give us the best chance of winning. It also risks the likelihood that we could run into a hand. Okay, so let's talk about the possibility of running into a hand. Let's say that each of our opponents will call with roughly the top 10% of hands. Okay, and I, I know some of you will call with the top 15%, and some people are really tight about calling. Other people's all in, so it might be the top 5%, or even in some extreme cases, the top 3%. But let's just say, on average, most of my opponents will be calling this shove with the top 10% of hands. So... There are five opponents that we need to get this shove through. Obviously, we don't want to get called by anything because we only have pocket deuces. Our best chance is that we would have a coin flip situation, right? Uh, I guess we would be a 70% favorite specifically against ace-deuce, right? <laughs> that's pretty unlikely, and I don't think that's a calling hand for too many players. So... Uh, we have five opponents. Let's suppose each opponent has a 10% chance of calling because, again, we're going to say on average they'll call with the top 10% of their hands. So, 5 times 10 is 50%. So that means that theoretically this shove should get through with no call 50% of the time. But let's talk about that other 50% when we might actually get called. How bad of shape are we going to be in? Well, most of the hands in the top 10% range are actually going to be ace-king, ace-queen type of hands. And against those hands, we have a coin flip. Now, when my M is six and a half, I'm happy to take a coin flip. And when you have this type of stack, 15 big blinds, however you want to look at it, you should also be willing, especially in the early middle stages of a tournament, to take that coin flip, even against these kinds of opponents I'm not going to really be able to exploit my skill edge over these opponents with such a short stack. It's pretty much most decisions I'm going to have are going to be like this one, push or fold. So 
given all of that, I think for me, this is a pretty clear, if scary, shove. And I do. How many of you would just throw your deuces away and wait for a better spot? And how many of you would agree with my decision? Another small factor to consider is that the average stack is now close to 20,000 and we only have 9,400. So I'm not really in a position to win this tournament right now anyway. So taking a, a stab at this pot and increasing my stack, hopefully without a call, but even if I do get called, hopefully by two over cards and hopefully win the coin flip. These are the types of risks that I'm willing to take in tournaments, even when I think I have a perceived skill edge over my average opponent. This time, the result of the hand is it folds to the big blind who calls and we win a coin flip against ace nine offsuit. Now I see you guys and I can hear half of you out there saying it's too risky for me. I'd rather wait for a better spot. Uh, you know, you're not going to be at a seven-handed table all day. It's really nice that I only have to get through five opponents here. And it's also nice that some of them have a slightly below average, but not desperate stack themselves. So actually the caller was one of the 15,000 stacks. So he took a pretty big risk there. But I think it's not a bad call in his shoes with ace nine. I think it's optional, kind of depending on what he thinks of me, how loose he thinks I'm shoving. He can fold the ace nine, but I think in his shoes against most opponents, I would also have called. Uh, obviously, we're happy that we won the coin flip, which put our stack back up to the average level for the tournament at that time. Okay, so a little while later in the same tournament, uh, about half the field was gone, maybe a little bit more. So our stack was slightly above average at this point. The blinds were 500 and 1,000, and we had 28,000 to start the hand. And there's also an ante of 125 per player. So we're in the big blind here. Our M is about 12, 13. Yeah, it's about 13. And two folds to a good player in third position who has us covered by 100%. He's got about 58,000 in his stack. And he min raises in third position to 2,000. The action folds all the way back to us in the big blind holding king of spades four of hearts so uh we're getting a very attractive price to call there's 4300 in the pot and it only costs us 1000 more to see a flop obviously we can get into trouble if we happen to flop a king and he happens to have ace king or aces uh yeah these things do happen but i think in balance it's a mandatory call i don't think you can be folding king four in this situation uh, even against a good player, I know I'll be out of position and that our opponent starts with a range advantage, but just the compensation that we're getting from this pot, these odds are too good to resist. And I do call. Do you fold? And if you do fold, what is the worst hand that you would be calling with in this spot? So I call and we're going to see a flop heads up and it comes Ace of spades, king of clubs, four of diamonds, ace, king, four. So it's a great flop for us. We have top, uh, we have bottom two pair, 
And uh, I think when you're in a heads up situation against a pre-flop raiser, and I don't think you should ever be leading. We've talked about this on the podcast before. You know, maybe in a multi-way pot, especially one with a wet board, if we flop a monster, you can go ahead and lead out and also do the same with some of your draws uh, for balance. But I think in this situation, we just want to go ahead and check and let him continuation bet and hope that he does. Maybe he has something like ace-queen. That would be delightful. Uh, we want to try to get all the chips in against his best one pair, top pair hands. So we check and the villain bets 1,000 into 5375, which is of course a very, very small bet, less than 20% of the pot. And we're just not going to let him get away with that. We, we have to uh, raise it. We make it 6,500. And to our surprise, this opponent, who I did mention is a good, strong player with a lot of chips, three bets to 12,000. All right. So he bet 1,000. We said 65, and he said 12,000. The problem is we only have another 20,000 behind at that point. So what is happening here? It's ace-king for rainbow. It doesn't feel like our opponent has ace-queen, ace-ten. I mean, I think at worst he's going to have ace-four here. I think this is a fold, guys. Believe it or not, we we didn't want to get three-bet when we check-raised on this board. If our opponent is outplaying us or overplaying ace-queen or ace-jack, then okay, uh it's a weird situation. You just don't see that very often. We now have a bluff catcher, and I don't think our opponent has a lot of bluffs. Okay? He's a good player. Now, if you have uh, a player that you've marked down as uh, way too aggressive, um, you know, lag, loose aggressive, super lag, anything like that, then go ahead and get it in with the bottom two here. That's what you want to do against a player like that. But this guy I have down as a as a relatively solid. Um, he's a reg on the site. I'm sure that he's a winning player. And so given all that, it just doesn't feel like he's ever bluffing. What is he bluffing with? A gut shot? He has queen jack and he decided to just keep raising? That would be odd. He doesn't have a flush draw on this rainbow flop. It just doesn't feel... Like he has a lot of bluffs in his range. So I think folding bottom two is correct. However, Hero isn't that good at poker. So I called. I think I could also have shoved there, but I think I was a little bit lost in the hand, which is probably why I just should have folded at that point. But as it turns out, I called and there is now 30,000 in the pot and Hero has only 14,000 behind and the turn card comes the 10 of diamonds it's funny because a minute ago i said did he just three bet bluff with queen jack well if he did he even that has us beat at this point so this is a pretty ugly card and i checked and our opponent shoved or you know bet enough half the pot is all we have left so bet enough for us to have to put it all in to call and i think since we called on the flop we just have to compound that mistake and call here because we're getting about three to one on our money. And I guess there's some chance our opponent 
is spazzing out here. Even still, it feels to me like we're always going to be up against Ace King, Pocket Aces, you know, hands like that the overwhelming majority of the time. So what I don't like about my play in this hand is I I couldn't find the hero fold. So I end up getting all my chips in and our opponent turned over pocket fours. So I'm in really, really bad shape here. Uh, we have bottom two against a set. Well, it's actually not bottom two. <laughs> on the turn because the 10 hit. So we don't have any winners. We need a king and a king only. Guess what? Mr. Luckbox over here hits on the river, the beautiful king of diamonds. And so I basically two outed him and through my horrific play collected a massive pot. At that point, I had a top 10 stack in this tournament. I went on to claim fifth place, which was almost $1,000, which is a pretty good prize when you only bought in once for $50. And to me, that really demonstrates the effect of rake. Normally in a $50 tournament with the same number of players, uh, fifth place would have paid something like six or 700. And in this case, I believe it was 980 or something like that. So you really feel the rake more when you win because you don't get paid as much as you otherwise would have. And obviously it's compounded greatly by even the most incremental increase in rake. Like you might say, well, Clayton, it's not that big of a difference if there's a $100 tournament and a $10 entry fee as opposed to a $100 tournament with a $15 entry fee. You might not see them as being very different, but I'm here to tell you guys the difference between 10% and 15% is not 5%. It's 50%. So when your local card room ups the rake by what looks like a small amount, ask yourself how that's going to have a, a compound effect on the prize pool and ask yourself whether it's even worthwhile for you to play that tournament when they're taking another 50% for themselves. Well, that'll do it for this episode, everybody. Again, thank you so much for all of your emails, all of your tweets, at Clayton Comic, and look forward to many more discussions to come, and I hope that you do as well. So for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, I'm Clayton Fletcher. Thank you so much for listening.